Hi, Claire. Hi, Jodie. How are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you very much. Excellent. Now, you've gone away and been a busy bee and sourced <laughs> your own interview special this week. And Look at me. Mm, I know. Look at you. And I think that I get good guests. And this is no discredit to any of the fantastic women I've spoken to. But you have got, and I don't think this is hyperbole, you've got a legend. I do have a legend, you're right. Of not just British athletics, but world athletics. And it's not my place to introduce this person. So I'm going to hand over to you. (laughs) Well, I did. I I did. um, I bumped into this lady at the British Athletics Writers Association and I told her I'd rather interview her than Usain Bolt. Um, So this week on the podcast, (laughs) it's true as well. (laughs) This week on the podcast, we've got the first lady of British Athletics, the incomparable Olympic gold medalist, Mary Peters. Hello, Mary. Thank you so much. Hello, (laughs) Judy. Thanks for talking to us today. It's a a real honour. You've had such an amazing career, and it was a very long career as well, um, and obviously you're still involved in the sport today, but I always think the best place to start is right at the very beginning. So okay. could you tell us a little bit about when you started out in sport, which must have been in the 50s, um, and it wasn't necessarily a thing that, that girls did back then? No, that's true. I had a very encouraging headmaster who saw that I wasn't very academically bright, but had talent <laughs> at sport. And I was playing cricket very badly one day, and he said to me, come with me. And he took me through to the next field where the boys were being taken for athletics. And I started training with the former pupil who was who became my coach. And um, at school, we only did the 100 yards, the 220 yards, the high jump and long jump. And he said one day, would you like to try a pentathlon? And I said, what's that? And... We went to the Northern Ireland Championships and there was a a lady called Thelma Hopkins who was a world record holder in the high jump at that time and Maeve Kyle who was an international athlete and uh, hockey player for Ireland and I came third and I was 16 and so it became my sport. And your dad was very in, encouraging. He built a long jump pit in your garden and made you a shot on a shot put circle, I believe. That's right, that's right. <laughs> they were birthday presents, which weren't the most welcome, but very helpful. <laughs> and that shot circle was the first concrete shot circle in Northern Ireland? Yes, it was indeed. We used to put the shot off grass. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, you, you progressed quite quickly in, in Northern Irish athletics. Um, so you... In, in that I mean, quite a small area, but you became quite successful quite quickly and were breaking Northern Irish records and stuff. But it was a big jump between that and coming to Great Britain to go to the British trials. I mean, I remember at White City. Um, That's true. Um, I did one year at the Northern Ireland Championships. I got seven medals, oh, wow. uh, two of them in relay. And um, the strongest event appeared to be the Shophood. And I went with Spartan Athletic Club, which was my second club, uh, to Holland uh, as a a shot putter uh, when Maria Hartman was team manager of the British team, and she spotted that I had talent, and I was selected for the shot put against West Germany in 1961 at the White City. Cool, and that was a big experience. But you'd been to the Commonwealth Games by then, didn't you, in 58? I had. I'd I'd been in Cardiff in 1958. And I put the shot, did the high jump, and uh, ran in the relay. <laughs> I like your story <laughs> about the relay because there was only one sprinter in the relay team, a shot putter, That's a javelin right. throw, and a high jumper. That's right. And we, we made the final because <laughs> another team had dropped the baton. So it was a bit embarrassing. <laughs> but we made the final of the Commonwealth Games, which was quite good. <laughs> the thing about the relay is you've got to get the baton round. That's right. Well, we did that. But by the time I passed it to our final runner, who was the sprinter, Maeve Kyle, the England team were breaking the world record at the other end of the track. <laughs> <laughs> but the 58 um, Commonwealth Games was actually also very important for you because it's where you met your coach, um, Buster McShane, who had a massive career, a massive influence on your career. Yes, he was there as a weightlifter and he invited all the athletes that had competed for Northern Ireland at those games to go and do a weight training session one evening. And about half a dozen of us turned up. And uh, I just loved it because you didn't have to go out and get wet and (laughs) dig the stuff out of a a pile of mud. And um, 
so I enjoyed weight training and still do it to this day. Um, he was quite an unconventional character, Buster. Is that right? He was. He was. He was. He had read a lot of books. He had been to the uh, Rome Olympics, and he had read a lot about what the Americans were doing, and realised that most of them were doing weight training as part of their preparation for athletics, and so introduced it to us. And I loved it because you could see progression, yeah. you know. And I ended up doing an eighth squat with 860 pounds on my shoulders. And I was doing a 45-degree jerk press with 240 pounds, which was quite unusual for a woman in those days. Well, that's what I was going to say. Even today, um, we hear some women who say they don't want to get too bulky, they don't want to put too, on too much muscle. So back in the 50s and early 60s, it must have been quite unusual for a woman to take weightlifting so seriously. It was. It, it certainly was. But I didn't feel, I felt it was firming my muscles, not creating huge muscles. Yeah. And that it gave, because each of my events were explosive, that it was helpful to the muscles to be able to perform to the best of their ability. Well, it certainly helped you, because, I mean, coming into 62, you went to the Commonwealth Games again. But at this point, the Commonwealth Games didn't have a multi-events. You, you only had the shot put to compete in. That's right. Um, I also did the high jump at those games. Oh. But the uh, pentathlon wasn't introduced into the Olympic program until Tokyo in 64, mm. and I competed in that. And then the Commonwealth Games, it didn't come into the program until 1970. Yeah. So it must have been quite frustrating for you, knowing that your best event, because um, obviously the shot put was your best individual event, but overall your best event was the multi-events, and it wasn't something that you were able to actually take part in very often. That's true, but we did have... About once a year, we would have an international Great Britain versus Holland or Belgium. Uh, so at least we had occasionally the opportunity to do it. And, of course, the British Championships. Yeah, of course. So around this time in 62, um, I've been reading your book, Mary. So <laughs> <laughs> um, you met someone who'd become a great friend and a great competitor and someone that you consider the greatest all-round um, British athlete, female athlete, which was Mary Rand. That's right. You became great friends with Mary. We did. Um, well, Mary was the, the golden girl of that era. Uh, she had competed in, in Rome in the long jump and had been expected to win, uh, didn't make the final. So she and I started uh, occasionally training together, and we shared a room in Tokyo at the Olympics with also Anne Packer mm -hmm. and a hurdler called Pat Nothing. And the four of us had four beds lined up. We hung our clothes and chairs, and we had to share a bathroom and, and lose with the rest of the team. But we had such good fun. And, of course, Mary won a gold, a silver, and a bronze, and Anne won a gold and a silver, and I was fourth. But fourth was a big step up for you, right? It certainly was, and I had no expectation of that. But we were divided by the two Russian yeah. athletes, Arena Press and Galina Bistrova. Mary, I love the fact you remember all the names of all your competitors and all your... <laughs> a lot of people even today don't know the names of their competitors, so it's, I think it shows like how involved in the sport you've been. It's great. Um, in your book, you describe Mary Rand as probably the greatest um, female um, athlete, British athlete, and you wrote you your book in 74. Do you think, still stand by that, or do you think there's people since then who've taken that crown? Oh, well, of course, Denise Lewis and, and Jessica Ennis have, have done so much more. Uh, but they, we were amateur athletes yeah. who had full-time jobs and just did sport as a hobby, whereas now it's much more a full-time occupation for athletes. Absolutely. Um, I love your description of Mary Rand. You said she turned up at the British Championships in a sports car wearing a designer dress with an Arabian prince on her, on her, on her arm, <laughs> and you were there with your, with your dad and your, your stepmom. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mary went, uh, won a scholarship to go to Millfield mm -hmm. School in Somerset because she lived down in Wales. And um, it was full of, of very wealthy children, the, the children of wealthy parents, I should say. And she met the prince and uh, they had a fling. <laughs> <laughs> she really was a superstar of the sport, though, wasn't she? Like um, oh, almost she like a modern wonderful. day celebrity. 
yes, but great fun to be with as well. Great. Um, so yeah. in 64, you came fourth, but like you said, Mary Rand and Ann Packer both won gold medals. Lynn Davis won a gold medal. Ken Matthews won a gold medal. It really was a very successful championships for Great Britain. It certainly was. Yeah. And it and it and it put athletics much more on the uh, map of British sport. Um, what was it like it, those kind of championships back then compared to the modern day championships? Oh well, as I said, we shared rooms. We 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 got five dollars a day as pocket money. Uh, we we travelled as a team. We stayed in the village. Uh, the men and women were segregated in those days. The women's village surrounded by a big barbed wire fence to keep the men out. <laughs> uh, we had to have femininity tests to prove that we were women. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you about that because that happened in in '66, wasn't it? it? Like I said, like you won your first medal at the Commonwealth Games and you got silver in the shot, which you said was very disappointing. Um, but the other first was you actually had yeah you had to have a femininity test and it wasn't like today where they do a blood test or saliva test and check your chromosomes. It was a how do I say it? It was a full of yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was very embarrassing, especially for the younger members of the team. I can't um, imagine. Some, some of our team members had had become mothers, so it wasn't as embarrassing for them. But uh, for us single ladies, it was a bit of a shock, and and nobody told us what was going to happen. So you went into a room and were um, put into the stirrups, and and that was it. And, of course, everybody was so embarrassed that when they came out, they ran and didn't tell us why, you know. So it was a bit of a shock. (laughs) A bit like, (laughs) you don't say. (laughs) Like, what was really interesting in your book, though, is you wrote something... um, about that that whole time and um, that situation that is just rings so true today. Um, you obviously had to have um, these tests, and in your book you wrote, um, down the years the procedure has become a whole lot, uh, somewhat more sophisticated, but at the time a little more, um, but, but at the same time a little more sinister. By the Mexico Olympics in 1968, they had ostensibly developed a method of determining sex by saliva tests. This was altogether more acceptable from the personal point of view. But before they started, I went to Marie Hartman, who was the team captain at the time, the manager, team manager, right? Yeah. Um, to, to demand to know what would happen if any of our girls, if they did fail a test, um, which was now decided by a chromosome analysis. It was all very well to say that this was being done in the name of fair, in, of spare, fair, of fair play in sport. But there were more serious implications as well. Supposing a girl just failed the test and was eliminated from the games in a blaze of worldwide publicity, she may well have been leading a perfectly balanced life until that moment with boyfriends and marriage prospects only to be exposed to millions of people as a freak. And of course, 35 years later, that's exactly what happened to Casta Semenya. So that's right. The, how that something that happened it was happening in the 68th and you were commenting on it then. And people still hadn't sorted it out 40 years later. And still now there's something we're talking about. I know. I, I, uh, I was very concerned because there had been uh, allegedly a couple of girls who had gone to America to have operations mm-hmm. to sort out their difficulties. And I did not want, I was captain of the team and I didn't want any of my teammates to be put into that embarrassing situation. Um, but luckily, nothing happened at those games. But afterwards, when I team managed the British team, I came across a young lady who ha- I had worries about and asked the team doctor to accompany me to the the femininity testing uh, lab. And subsequently, she failed her test. Yeah. And uh, she was. it was explained to her why she wasn't able to compete anymore. It's, I mean, it's such a complicated issue and it's not more than we can go into um, right yeah. here and now, obviously. <laughs> but it's just that something that was came around in the 60s and you had the foresight to see what the potential of, um, problems could be. And to this day, we still haven't sorted it out. I just think it's some something <laughs> something needs to be done. Um, yeah. So obviously, as I said, in 66, you won your first silver medal at the Commonwealth Games because they still didn't have a pentathlon. You were doing okay. you were doing the, the shot put. Um, and in 68, you were injured at the Olympics. Um, yes, I, I uh, pulled an adductor muscle, but I thought it was going to be okay, so it restricted me during my competition. But I was also criticised for taking my duties as, as team manager too seriously. Oh, 
<laughs> Did that, do you think that um, took something away from your performance? It could have, but but at the time, I I'm, was always kind of the mother figure, and I was always looking after everybody else instead of myself. Um, so it's 68 Olympics. I mean, for many athletes, especially female athletes in the 60s, you were 28, 29 then. Yes. It would have been time to think about retirement. So what propelled you? Well, I believed that I was a slow maturer. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and I was still enjoying the sport. And um, I had given up teaching, which I had trained as a domestic science teacher, mm-hmm. because the director of education didn't like me me having time off work to go on all these uh, international trips. So um, it was kind of a lifestyle for me. I loved getting away and uh, traveling the world and representing my country very proudly. And of course, in as you said previously, the pentathlon was introduced to the Commonwealth Games in 1970. So you did have something to aim for. Yes, and I won the, the pentathlon and the shot put. Uh, I was the only British athlete to win two gold medals at those Games. And the Commonwealth Games has been very important in your career, um, and it is an important event as a stepping stone for athletes. I think so. I think it's, uh, they're always called the Friendly Games. Yeah. They're uh, English-speaking countries that we compete against. And uh, you live in a village um, at close hand with everybody from other countries, so you become great friends. And it gives you that worldwide um, exposure as an athlete because they are widely covered on television in most countries of the Commonwealth. So it gives you a stepping stone to perhaps European world or Olympic competition. And of course you didn't have the world championships back then, so the Commonwealth Games was a big deal. No, it was. I went um, with the British team. No, I was invited as a guest along with people like... um, Fanny Blankers Cohen and uh, oh, lots of the famous athletes of the past, and we were given VIP treatment, and it was wonderful to, to be able to sit in the stand. To where? In Rome. Oh, to, to the to the Commonwealth Games. No, the no, World sorry, Championships. World Championships. Yes. Oh, it's nice. And will you be going to the Commonwealth Games this this in March? In um, I am indeed, Gold, and you? it'll be my fifteenth game. Mary, we're going to be there. Oh, good. We'll, we'll catch up. <laughs> I uh, I uh, missed Delhi because at the time uh, of those games, I was Lord Lieutenant for Belfast, which meant I was the Queen's representative. And I was so afraid of getting Delhi belly out in India that I, I decided not to go, but I've been to all the rest. Well, just missing, yeah, missing one in 50 years is not not bad going 60 years no. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah we're, de- we're definitely going to be in the gold coast and we'll see you there oh it'll be wonderful um, we have a large team going and i'm the the um, patron of the commonwealth games for northern ireland so i'll be out supporting all our young athletes wow so coming off of the 70 olympics your next real goal was the 72 sorry of the 70 commonwealth games the next goal was the 72 um um, Olympics and I think now you really believed it was something that you could win I did for the first time I had um, expectations I trained really hard I spent a full year uh, beforehand learning the Fosbury flop which was obviously new to me and uh, the first time I tried it I jumped higher than I'd ever jumped before and that made a big difference and I also was privileged to uh, win a Churchill Fellowship which allowed me to go to California for six weeks to train. The reason being, we were at the height of the troubles in Northern Ireland, so it was very difficult getting to the track. The track that I trained on was full of potholes because it it had been hit by the frost. So to get to California to sunshine, not have to work every day, and to be able to train in the sunshine was amazing. I think athletes nowadays, and it's still tough, obviously, being an athlete, um, especially when you're starting out, there's a lack of money, and obviously you've got to dedicate yourself, but they don't understand (laughs) how easy it is for them compared to how it was for you, and the lack of facilities, the lack of um, any kind of funding, anything like that, you really were on your own. Yes, but but that makes you a stronger person. 
You know, I don't envy any of the money that they get nowadays because I think it's a different lifestyle totally. I'm grateful that I had the opportunities that I had and also the fact that I took those opportunities and made the most of them. Yeah, absolutely. You definitely did. <laughs> um, just going back slightly, um, in, in the late 60s, um, yourself and your coach made the decision that if you really wanted to compete on the world stage, that you really needed to put on a lot more muscle and really dedicate yourself to weightlifting. And you really did. I mean, over this period of one year, you, you put on a lot of muscle and became a lot stronger, which obviously did great things for your um, pentathlon, great things for your sport. But it actually caused quite a lot of controversy and gossip as well, didn't it? Oh, I don't know, did it? Well, that's I what was... you say in your book. <laughs> oh, do I? <laughs> did I? It was written a long time ago. Um, yeah, people were surprised that at my age I still wanted to do it. Yeah. But I... I I put on two stone to win the Commonwealth in 66 in the shot put because there was no pentathlon. But I lost it very quickly afterwards because I just hated putting on weight because I had to wear bigger clothes. But um, (laughs) I still have strength in my shoulders and arms that have stood by me all these years and I've never regretted any of it. Good, absolutely. So like you said, before the 72 Olympics, you were able to go off to California to train, get that period of time when you can just concentrate on your sport have facilities be able to really get the training in that you needed to win um you got um injured slightly beforehand but <laughs> thankfully you sorted it out beforehand and one other thing that i read <laughs> which was very was very surprising in the run-up to that olympics now we hear a lot um, of athletes especially maybe in the multi-events with female athletes who have very almost tempestuous relationships with their coach i know kelly and denise did with charles um, Jess has with Tony on occasions, um, but I've never heard of a coach hitting their athlete. Oh, I know. He was just so frustrated with me. <laughs> Nowadays, he, that was... <laughs> I know, but he's not here to defend himself now because he was killed it was six months yeah. after after uh, my success in a car accident. But in your book, like uh, you've got nothing but good things to say about your coach, but it was the the passion... Um, with both of you and obviously you made up very quickly afterwards but the the, it's just a relationship that athletes do have with their coaches it's so close and it's there's so much depending on it isn't there of course and and because well in my day we didn't pay our coaches Mm -hmm. so he was giving me valuable time when he could have been in his business to support me and to encourage me and to give me uh, improved skills and uh, it was one fiery moment of him being I think disgusted because I was he felt I wasn't putting 100% into it and he was that was just before the 72 Olympics and of course your win and world record at the 72 Olympics in the pentathlon in the pentathlon is seriously one of the most iconic moments in British sport um, not only um, did you win with a gold medal, but it was the way in which you won it. You were up against Heidi Rosendahl, who was like <laughs> the darling of the crowd. Um, she's the world record holder in the long jump. And I think she was, was she the world record holder in the pentathlon as well before you broke it? No, no. Um, the girl who was said Pollock oh, right. was the record holder. But it was really a classic um, competition of someone who was speed, Holy Rose, who's brilliant at the long jump and the 200 metres, and strength as well. And it's, that's, that's the kind of, that's always the competition in the multi-event, trying to get that balance right. It is. My weakness was her strength. Mm. I was uh, not a good long jumper. And she was, as you say, world record holder and went on to win the gold medal yeah. in the long jump. But we meet occasionally, uh, Heidi and I, and we have the best relationship and the last time we met was on our 40th anniversary. I went to Munich and we we met up and went to the stadium and oh, wow. had lunch together. And she always said, you know, we knew you were going to win. And I said, how could you possibly <laughs> know that? I was only fifth in the rankings. And she said, because you're British. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but the morning of my comp- the first the day of the pentathlon, her coach said to me, Ah, your favourite, your number one. And that gave me a great boost. And I said to her that day we met again, why did he say that to me? She said, because we believed it. Oh, wow. That's great. And, you know, if you have that doubt in your mind that you're not going to win, and I only won by 10 points, which was like a tenth of a second. 
You, you, you said that there was maybe a, a little bit of gamesmanship by the officials during the championships. They let Heidi and the other Germans go off and do some practice by themselves and stuff like that. Oh, well, yes, but maybe if we'd been in Britain, I would have had the <laughs> You were having none of it, though. I mean, you <laughs> so, no, I sent, I sent the team manager to bring them back. <laughs> the most iconic um, event during the pentathlon was the high jump where yeah. you said you just changed over to the the um, Fosby flop, which really improved you. But you were literally, there was you and one other person in the whole stadium, the other end doing the pole vault. And Wolfgang that, Nordwick. See, once again, you remember everybody's names. <laughs> um, <but laughs> he the, was an East German uh, pole vaulter, yeah. But the whole crowd was totally behind you, and it really felt like it was the, the start of the modern age of the crowd participation in events, just clapping it you on. It was amazing, yes, and... Um, Jeffrey Archer, the author, always tells me that he was the cheerleader and got them going. And, of course, a lot of people gathered at the high jump end with Union Jacks. And Wolfgang would, would clear a height in the pole vault, and then I would clear a height in the high jump. And I jumped out of my skin. I jumped five, uh, 182, which was 511 and a half. And my previous best as a pentathlon was five foot six. Oh, wow. So it was worth changing to the Fosbury, and I met Dick Fosbury some years later and thanked him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think what people love about, especially the high jump performance, was your enthusiasm and your obvious love and enjoyment of the sport, and people feed off of that. Yeah, but nobody had ever watched me before. Right. (laughs) Like, there are, you know, you rise to a performance if you're an actress on the stage, and of course, because I was centre stage that evening, um, I got the the support of the crowd. Well, it really carried you through. You had the long jump on the first on the morning of the second day, which yeah. you I think you jumped five ninety six, but Heidi yeah. Rosenthal jumped six seventy, um, yeah. and really put herself really close to you. And obviously the the um, two hundred meters coming up afterwards was another one of her very very strong events, and you just knew you just had to run as hard as possible and hang on for dear life. Absolutely. And my coach kept shouting. I could hear him in the crowd. Use those arms, use those arms. And I did run faster than I'd ever run before. And I was 33 by then. So it was magical. Um, and watching the video of you just waiting and waiting and looking at the scoreboard and hoping. (laughs) (laughs) I was surrounded by all the English speaking girls as well because they nothing against Heidi but they wanted me to beat her (laughs) (laughs) well also she went on to win another two gold medals she didn't need that she did did. (laughs) but but we discovered afterwards you know my father turned up he was in the stadium and I had no idea he was there he'd come from Australia and um, so there was a lot of excitement as we as as I realised on live on television that he'd been there but also the following evening, I had a threat to my life that mm-hmm. if I came home to Belfast, that uh, I would be shot and my flat would be bombed. Oh, and yeah. my father wanted me to go back to Australia with him. But Heidi was also threatened because the Israelis, uh, remember the Black September yeah. attack on the Israeli team? Well, she was Jewish and she had to escape from the village um, and put into a private uh, secret um, hotel so that uh, she could then come out and compete in the relay for Germany. I mean, obviously, nowadays we have big events and we worry about terrorism and stuff, but we forget that it was like 40, 50 years ago, there were still the same issues. That's right. And, right. and of course, because the games were in Bavaria, uh, they felt that uh, they were going to uh, do a better games than the Berlin games when Hitler had yeah. um, had been against Jesse Owens, the yeah. black athlete, and they were going to show the world that they could do it better and in a more friendly way, and of course they hadn't got enough security surrounding the village, and that's how that all happened. The fact that you, because it's something we haven't talked about, the fact that you did stay in Northern Ireland all, throughout your whole career, um, and stayed there despite, despite death threats and that really has added to the love and that people have for you in the sport and oh, well, the sport. <laughs> it's the best sweet country in the world oh. i love it i love the people i i love the beauty of the countryside 
I I bring visitors here all the time so they can share it. And it was my home. I, I wanted to remain here. No regrets about coming home and staying. So after winning the gold medal, I mean, you become, you're a celebrity. You're on um, TV shows. You're on This Is Your Life. Are you in the BBC Sports Personality of the Year? How did your life change? Oh, it changed a lot, but that's why it was lovely living in Northern mm. Ireland, because you came home to stability, people you knew and had known before you became well-known. And um, still to this day, I'm surprised when people will stop me in the street and say, gosh, I've never seen you in life, real life before. Well done. And, of course, it's 47 years <laughs> since I had my success. <laughs> but at, the, uh, at this time in my life, I'm raising money for the next generation. Over the last 40 years, we have a, a charity called the Mary Peters Trust, which helps all sports, young um, people from table tennis to hockey to rugby to athletic swimming, you name it. And um, we give 120 bursaries every year to make their dreams come true. And that gives me a great deal of pleasure. So when you, after the, after the 72 Olympics, um, obviously now if someone wins the Olympics, for Jess, for example, they become millionaires. They're all over TV adverts and sponsorship and all the rest of it. But of course, in 72, you technically weren't allowed to be professional. No, that's right, because I didn't retire. Yeah. I went on to the next Commonwealth Games, so I had to retain my amateur status. But technically, I believe you might have been a professional for a few years before that. Really? Well, because you were working in a gym, which wasn't allowed. Oh, well, I was secretary, so it was, I was allowed. Oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't um, doing anything illegal. <laughs> um, so what was it? How, did, how does your life change when you get that celebrity and you're invited to events all over the world and people are giving you awards? It's a very different life than um, the life you had beforehand. Oh, yes, but, but you just come back to reality. I still live in the, the uh, house that I, uh, I've had for over 40 years. I, I come and go. I travel a lot and... I just have a charmed life. I'm, I'm going to um, the Commonwealth in, in Australia. My family all lives there, so mm -hmm. it's a great opportunity to go and visit them. I've been invited to, on the way out, I'm stopping in Abu Dhabi, and I'm going to speak at the British club there. I'm then being invited to go to India to give a keynote speech in the end of August, beginning of September. So life is still a buzz and very exciting, and I do something almost every day of my life. So uh, I'm not sitting in my rocking chair with embrocation behind my ears yet. <laughs> so after 72, um, I think there were some thoughts of maybe retiring, you'd achieved what you needed to achieve, but you didn't have that long to really enjoy the moment, because as you said earlier, in Easter 73, your coach was killed in, in a car crash. I know. I know, and it was very difficult to decide whether to retire then. Uh, I had almost retired, but then I trained with Mike Bull, who was British pole vault record holder and also um, a very good decathlete, and Mike and I started to train together with help from friends, and we decided that in memory of our coach, we would win the pentathlon and decathlon at the next Games, which were in Christchurch, New Zealand in 1974, and we fulfilled that dream. And you were 35, 34, 35 um, then? Which, ne nearly 35, yeah. yeah. Which, even for athletes today, is is, is getting on to still be participating. Um, but you really enjoyed, you really loved the sport and you really loved it, competing. I did, and I loved the friendships and the opportunities of travel and uh, keeping myself healthy. Yeah. Um, yeah. That very, very long career, career that you had and a very successful career. But what I think has really added to um, people's um, kind of the appeal that you have across across the whole sport is that you've always stayed involved when you retired. And one of the reasons you continued to 74 was because you wanted to win a gold medal and um, save money to build a track in Northern Ireland. Uh, on all That's track. right. And we did that, and it uh, it took me three years to collect the money, and um, it's been uh, improved over the years, and it's 
called the Mary Peters track and it's about 10 minutes drive from home and I just love going down there and seeing young people training and using it and benefiting from it. I mean, since since um, your retirement, you like you said, you've got the Mary Peters Trust, which train, which um, raises money for bursaries for young athletes, up and coming athletes of all sports. You've been president of UK Athletics, I believe. Yes, um, you, I was team manager for two Olympics. Yeah, you were a Dane in in um, eighty and eighty four. And you were you were made a Dane for all your charity work and the contribution you've made to athletics in Northern Ireland. So you've always stayed involved in the sport. Yes, and still love it, and still, um, I just wish I could get my spikes on and get out there again. Mary, <laughs> there's veterans competitions. <laughs> you don't feel like making a comeback? No, thanks. No? Okay. <laughs> You're busy enough. You've got a book I coming out. I do keep it, though. You've got a book coming out next year, I believe. Yes, I'm, I'm trying to inspire a new generation of, of young girls to get involved in sports, so I've invited a lot of former champions and um, uh, well-known sports people to tell me how they got involved in the mm. sport, who was their inspiration and their own achievements to show that you don't have to start with the uh, ability. You can build on that ability to become a champion. And um, luckily from people like you and other friends, I've made a lot of contacts. Some people do surprise me that they don't respond to my request because it's not an arduous task. No. But those who have, hopefully, will be included in the book. And we're going to bring it out next year for my 80th birthday. And that's, once again, to raise money for your bursaries? My charity, yes. Yeah. And it'll also uh, it'll give young people, uh, I hope, in schools and their parents the opportunity to read of how girls can can really do well in sport if they have the opportunities and take them. Because even today, all these years later, it's still a topic of discussion, is girls' participation in sport, how there's not a lot of coverage of sport. We have many great champions across all sports that are female who get no TV coverage, no, not less funding, and also just keeping girls in sport. Like they might start as youngster, but they always kind of drift away. So it's very important, I think, to people like you and hearing from other champions about how to get involved, how to stay involved and how to succeed. And it gives them a good, healthy lifestyle, making great friendships that you'll never make going to the pictures or sitting over your computer all evening. You know, it's friends for life. And we have such inspirational youngsters now, sailors, having to leave home at 16 and go to their training uh, centres. Um, we have a young rugby player who who's, lives in Cavan but comes to school in Northern Ireland and he's on the under-18 Irish um, rugby squad. And we have Jack Agnew who's out, actually out in Perth at the moment training to be part of a wheelchair uh, competition as part of the Commonwealth Games. And it gives me the greatest joy to see these young people with very positive thoughts being able to pursue their lovely sports. Mm, that's amazing. Thank you very much. So just before we go, um, I just I asked um, people on Twitter who would like to ask you some questions. So we've got some questions from fans on Twitter. OK. Yeah. So first of all is our friend at Trackcastic, which is another podcast, um, uh, Petit Couchon. And she says... Does Queen Mary think she would have enjoyed stepping up to the fi from five events to seven events at the heptathlon? <laughs> and we also had the same question from someone you might have heard of called Kelly Southerton. Oh, yes, I <laughs> Kelly well. So how would you have uh, felt about I, doing the heptathlon? I would have hated the 800 yeah. metres because that was usually my warm-up. Oh, yeah. I never did throw the javelin. I did throw the discus. If I'd had to have done seven events, I would have learnt those skills. Yeah don't think I would have been great at the 800 metres still. I could have probably thrown the javelin quite far, but I'm very glad there was only five events in my day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because adding, adding those two, and obviously when you were doing it, it did change from the, hundred, from, the six, from the 80 hurdles to the 100 hurdles, so that was a little bit of a change, which may have suited you. It, it did suit me, yes, uh, and I, I, I started uh, doing it very well, very quickly, yes. Um, but, yeah, you wouldn't have enjoyed the 800. I don't think anyone enjoys the 800, though. No. 
And Paul Hunt, which is at PA Hunt 1978 is his Twitter name, says, what does Mary think about changing the women's event now from the heptathlon to the decathlon? I would I would support it. Yes, and so did I. many years many years ago, I was uh, on the women's commission committee, uh, the IAF, and I I was trying to promote it at that stage because it would have brought in the pole vault, which would have been kind of a more gymnastic event, yep. and um, I felt it would be that women are strong enough to yep. be able to do ten events. Um, I'm not sure how Jessica and uh, Denise would have felt about that. <laughs> but, but if yeah. they'd known from childhood that that was the event, yes. they would have learnt the skills. Yes. Um, and because if you are good at the multi-events nowadays, you can get more support and can have the time to train for 10 events. Yeah. Um, I think the heptathlon is one of my favourite events. I think we all love the heptathlon. And one of the reasons is that the in- people are very, very strong at individual events. So we Absolutely. see people jumping seven metres in the in the long jump or um, two metres almost in the high jump, etc. So that really adds some excitement. But I'm not sure it finds the overall greatest athlete because it's very, very speed based, whereas the decathlon yeah. is much more, it's much more evenly split between yeah. speed and strength. Yeah. So it would be a very different event, but I think it's about time it happened. The only problem is fitting it into the programme yeah. of athletic events. It would take two day, two long days of including it in the programme. And I think that um, many of the promoters would find it difficult. Where there's a will, there's a way. They could make it work if they wanted to. Um, so we've got another question from Ian Sharp, who's at um, ENTNF. He says, Dame Mary is credited with starting our great tradition in women's multi-events. Who inspired you to take up athletics and why did you choose the pentathlon? Well, it was through my my headmaster at school and also encouragement from my parents. Uh, They hadn't had the opportunity to do sport and uh, wanted to encourage my brother and I. And because I had an elder brother, three years older than me, I tried to improve on what he could do always. I was quite competitive with him. So I owe a lot of my competitive streak to having that older brother who I adore. Mm-hmm. The you really were. I mean, I know you weren't the first um, to be successful in the in the, in the multi events. Mary Randall was obviously Olympic silver medalist um, before you, but it was from you that has set up this this history of multi events. From Judy Simpson, um, Denise Kelly, Louise Hazel, um, Kat, um, Jess Cat. It really did start with you in 1972. Well, yes, but it was really Mary Rand in 64 that um, highlighted it as an event. And, of course, if Fanny Blankers-Kern, who won four gold medals at the 48 Olympics, the Dutch athlete, if she'd been able to do a a pentathlon, she would have been another gold medalist because she was outstanding in all those events. So why do you think it is that we're so good at the multi-events? I mean, we've won an Olympic medal in 96, in 2000, in 2008, 2012, 2016. There's no other British event that is that successful. I think, well, I I can't speak for others because particularly Jessica was a very good long jumper and high jumper. But in my day, I wasn't good enough at any of the individual events to compete, apart from the shot put, which I didn't enjoy. So I think if you have the talent to do several events, it's quite a nice thing to do because you become very friendly with your fellow competitors and you're competing over a longer period of time. If you run 100 metres, it's over in such a flash. Yeah. Whereas if you're with your fellow competitors for two days, you get to become very friendly with them. And um, We've got another question here um, from Louise Hazel, who I just mentioned, who is the Commonwealth Oh, Champion she's a great athlete. Isn't she? And a great person as well. Yes. Um, she says, Mary, firstly, you're an OG which means original gangster. It's a very big compliment, Mary. Are people more or less interested in athletics now that, um, than they were in your day and why? Oh, oh, much more and mm-hmm. more, much more. I mean, in my day, you were lucky to get three men and a dog <laughs> uh, following particularly multi-events. But nowadays, you can get a stadium full of people enthused about athletics. But I think that's because it's also been shown very well on television over the years. 
Yeah. And there's no crowd like a British crowd. No. And they support other other competitors as well as their own, mm-hmm. which is always nice. Like at the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow and in Manchester, I was so proud of the way they treated the Commonwealth athletes equally. And we've got the Commonwealth Games coming back to Birmingham in 2020. I know, it's exciting, yes. Where's the, I don't know where the next Commonwealth I'm really confused. What you, 22, the next one in 22. I'm thinking of the Olympics. Um, and there was one, one last question for you. Um, who do you think, and this is from Malmo, Malmo 4, who will win the heptathlon in Tokyo? Oh, gosh. <laughs> mm. oh, I honestly don't know. Um, because the, the years in between is so susceptible to injury because it's, it's such hard work. I would hope it would be one of our British athletes. Well, yeah, I mean, at the moment, it's Nafafizu Tam, oh, I can't say her name now, Tiam, who's <laughs> won the last two championships from Belgium. But I think we all have great hopes for Katerina, don't we? Uh, we do, uh, if she can get the f- events all together. Maybe you need but... to give her some shot put competition, um, some shot put lessons, Mary. <laughs> I think my skills have gone over the years, <laughs> but I do I do have fonder memories of the shop put now that I'm retired than when I was doing it. <laughs> Always. Well, listen. Thank you very much. We have very fond memories of your your competition, but also just you being involved in the sport for so many years as an inspiration. Um, you're the first lady of British athletics, as far as I'm concerned. You've been an inspiration to millions of athletes, athletes and fans and still being involved in the support in the community to this day. So it's a very big thank you for us for all of those things and also for taking the time to speak to us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Jodie. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. We'll see you on the Gold Coast. I hope so, indeed. Bye, love. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Jodie, that was absolutely fascinating. I mean, I was a big big fan of Mary's to begin with but I'm even more in love with her now so much to talk about where do I even begin do you know what she's such a lovely lady such a lovely person to speak to totally open um ready to chat at all times and what I loved about her was obviously she's she's basically dedicated her life to athletics and it was originally obviously trying to win medals and stuff but then also after she retired she's never been away from the sport she's been a team manager she's been um the head of the um president she's obviously opened the track in in northern ireland she has a mary peters foundation now which raises money to give um scholarships and bursaries to all all sports people so she's a woman who has dedicated her life to to sport to athletics and she's such an amazing role model and just it was really amazing to speak to her and not just dedicating her life to it actively in the sense of giving something back and being philanthropic but just by being such a pioneer in women's sports and changing what was expected and what was acceptable for women to do within athletics she's you know almost accidentally been someone who's carved a path that was hitherto untrodden and oh my gosh what a wicked sense of humor I bet she'd be great (laughs) fun to have over for dinner oh absolutely the what was brilliant was when well, it was a long time ago, obviously, that she was she was active in athletics. And back then, there was no PR, there was no media training. So you just did what you did. And she just did herself. And I'm sure when she was young, it wasn't a thing for a young lady to do, um, especially the, the events that she w- was very proficient in, which was shot put. There was a time when she did put on a lot of weight and got much stronger, and people weren't doing weight. They weren't doing weightlifting like, obviously, we know athletes mm. do nowadays. So she was always a bit of a rebel, and she was always someone who, ahead of the game. Um, and it was just so nice that when she actually won the, the gold medal, and she was 33 at the time, which was r- really old back then, <laughs> to, to still be competing. Yeah. Um, but to, to finish your career with that, and then to obviously to go to the Commonwealth and finish it there with, with more gold medals. Um, you look at her contemporaries, um, Anne Packer, who won the gold medal in 64 in the 800, um, retired straight afterwards. I think she was 22. But she retired because, um, oh, I'm going to get married now and have, have kids. Um and that was kind of a mentality, and obviously not all, all mentality of all women back then, but it was a mentality in sport. That it was something you did for a bit of fun when you were younger. Mm. But Mary dedicated her whole um, career to it. And, yeah, so nice to chat to her. Fascinating. And then the professionalism of 
the whole thing, like you said, making athletics your entire life and being completely prepared to... Like she said, she didn't like gaining all of that muscle and she was eager mm-hmm. to lose it swiftly after competing. But if that's what it took to get the win, then yeah. that's obviously what Mary went on and did. And fascinating that she also said she wouldn't have enjoyed a heptathlon because she'd have hated the 800. And that makes sense because you get these... If you're a much more powerful heptathlete than a pentathlon is right up your street. But then we see with someone like Kat, who is such a slender, willowy build for a multi-eventer, she also thrives in the pentathlon. So I think hearing from Mary has kind of opened my eyes to the fact that you can be a very different type of multi-eventer. Well, that's the whole thing about the multi-events, isn't it? It's the balance. When you put on a bit of mus- extra muscle, um, like Jess had to, she lost she lost in the high jump, but she made up for it in the throws. Denise had to have the, the, do the same the same thing. And then you've got the throwing, the, the kind of the power athletes like um, Tiam, who's had to work really, really hard on her speed and her, and her not her high jump, obviously, but she's worked very hard on her speed um, and that's progressed into the long jump. Um, you look at, I can't think what her name is, who won in 2008 um, from Ukraine, was very, very strong. Same thing, very strong in the throws and really had to work on the speed. I mean, she only really got it right twice at the Olympics and the World Indoors once, um, when she actually set the World Indoor record in the in the, in the the pentathlon. Um, so it is all about that balance and it's a very difficult, difficult balance to get right because you'll lose one place, you'll make up somewhere else. Um, easier to do the less events you've got to do. If you've got to think about the 800 as well, Wow. Yes. <laughs> it's a very difficult thing. Quite an ask if you've been, you know, shifting iron for years. You definitely don't want to be carrying all of that extra bulk around for two laps. My other big mm. takeaway, and this is, I feel Mary delivered so many of her lines with a real twinkle in her eye. And she, <laughs> as I said, she's got that fantastic humour to her. But the flip side was hearing about the gender testing to which many of her compatriots and her competitors were subjected. It's just... Garcia and the way that Casta Semenya has been handled by the media, by the public, by the IAAF is terrible. And then you realise that actually, <laughs> believe it or not, there has been progress in that area. Well, yeah, but it was so... Because I read her autobiography in, in preparation for talking to her and I would recommend anybody read that book. Like, I couldn't even get into some of the stuff she talks about in there. It's quite racy. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have Very to borrow it. Can time. I borrow your copy? <laughs> Absolutely. Great. I got it on um, eBay for 10 <laughs> Um But um, it's really good. I'd re- definitely recommend um, people have a read of that. Um, but to, to think that was in 1966, um, I mean, it, I think she, she was 1966 sex tests coming before the European Championships um, that year. And there was a number of very famous Russian athletes who dropped out um, just before. We couldn't, couldn't possibly say why. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, for Mary to be bringing up that topic... Um, thirty over thirty, forty years um, before um, it became an issue with Kastan Semenya, and to think that the authorities had done nothing really about it in between. She was saying then, this is something that could ruin someone's life. It just takes one mistake, or even if it, or even if it's not a mistake, it takes one bit of gossip to get into the papers. And poor Kastan Semenya, she was eighteen years old, and it was all over the world. So it's really interesting that Mary was talking about that so long ago. And had had the foresight to think about it. And obviously no one had for 40 years. And then the foresight, again, to go on to do all of her charitable work, which I really encourage anyone who listened to and enjoyed the pod to go and check out and support. I think she's just the most brilliant ambassador for the sport. And yeah, what a listen. I (laughs) hope, I implore you, Jodie, go out and do more interview specials because it knocked mine out of the park. It was great. Oh, God, if you insist, Claire. <laughs> it's brilliant. Well, we definitely will have some more, more coming up. And in the quieter times of year, it's really nice to reach out to some of those people that we don't um, hear from um, who aren't running every day of the week. So it's nice to go back and look at some of the old heroes. Well, thank you for getting in touch with Mary. And thank you, Mary, for taking part. As I said, I'm an even bigger fan than I was, which is really saying something. <laughs> 